Today's readings are Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 14, and John 1, verse 1 through 18. This is God's word. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard, and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north, and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Because I am Israel, Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the, la- the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden. They will sorrow no more. The young women will dance and be glad, the young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. And then John 1, through, uh, 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to, the, to everything was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is he of whom I have said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have, received all, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we come into this room, we come uh, with a variety of uh, burdens um, or thankfulness or celebrations on our heart. And as we come from different places um, and different levels of belief and different experiences, there's also the commonality of um, our lives not turning out 
the way we hope. Um, things missing that we thought we would have. Um, things having experience that we never thought we'd have to face. Um, we're more of a mess than we care to admit. We're broken. And we find comfort, as this passage just declared, that you became flesh and dwelled among us, that you moved towards the messy, broken world. You moved as light into darkness, and we ask that you do that now, enlightening us in such a way that amidst the celebrations, the pain, the struggle, the suffering, the sorrow, amidst it all, we may grow and grow in your light. We pray for for this time now to be a, a time that feeds into that growth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, are you planning for a new you in 2015? Uh, I'm kind of a sucker for resolutions. I'm, I'm, I won't make you uh, answer, honestly. I know there's a lot of the cynical ones of you out there about you know resolutions and all that stuff. And I'm a sucker for resolutions, you know. So, uh, so of course, this year, as you probably would have guessed, my resolution is to just stop being so obsessed with constantly lifting weights because I'm just, it's getting just ridiculous up, up here. No, I'm kidding. Um, but that, you know, often our, our, our goals are, you know, related to, to health. That's one of our big cultural things, right? Something related to going to the gym or, or eating or dieting or something like that. And, you know, you kind of expect that that's what, if you polled people, that's what they would answer. But I was really impressed with you guys Last week's question of the week was, you know, what do you want to be different in 2015? And, and get ready because um, you folks got real about things. Somebody said, I want there to be, a, be healing in my broken relationships, namely my relationships with my dad. I want to move toward connectedness and community and away from the isolated, safe environment I've built for myself. Somebody else said, I want to be less attached to my plans for life. Someone said, more, not my will, but thy will be done. I love Mary's statement, may it be unto me as according to thy will. I want to live in that. Someone else said, I want 2015 to be the year where I have less self-doubt. I want it to be the year when I can look at my life and say, I'm finally comfortable with me. And then someone said, more understanding in myself for the leaders of religions, nations, and ethnic groups. Now, those are not shallow. You didn't give me the, you know, the typical kind of shallow New Year's resolutions to deal with. I, I really like that list. And it, and it speaks to how, whether it's something small or superficial, um, or whether it's just the, the deep things in life, we, we are kind of always leaning into what life could be and what the new you could be. And so kind of, it's very timely that the scripture of the week that comes up from the New Testament is, is John chapter 1, which deals with, I don't know if you caught the, some of the key phrase that I'm going to anchor and then broaden out from, is this idea that, um, that a, someone who accepts and receives Jesus and becomes a Christian is is born of God as a child of God. has been given the right to become a child of God. And that's, that's kind of the launching off part today, is, is this idea of being reborn, the rebirth that is 
what it means to be a Christian or to become a Christian. And it's just good to note as we get into that, uh, that not everyone thinks about it that way. It's pretty common to think about becoming a Christian or going to church or following Jesus as something that's sort of like, um, you know, sort of like this is the kind of music I'm into and this is the kind of spirituality I'm into. It's just sort of an accessory. It's something that you say, okay, now I'm going to associate myself with this. The Bible, unless you're willing to ignore big chunks of the Bible, like the one we're talking about today, the, the Bible's going to push you in a very challenging way to say, it's about rebirth. It's about being born anew. Um, John chapter 3, just a couple uh, chapters later, Jesus says, um, and oh, my, my Bible's over here, key part of this, this time. Um, he says, Jesus says to Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. And we know that there's sort of a cultural distaste with that phrase. It's gotten mangled and distorted to where it almost becomes unusable. So we'll talk about rebirth today, okay? We'll kind of set some of the baggage aside. I heard someone once say, say oh, that person was a born-againer. Like they turned it into a, into a whole noun, right? So it just, just kind of set some of the whatever baggage people have with that word and just talk about how this is a new birth to walk into the Christian faith. I had three headings that this passage I felt was driving at, and then we only have time for one of them um, because it kind, of, it kind of took over in what, what happened with looking at this text this week. So they were going to be your reborn through revelation and then also reborn for a status and then reborn into grace. We're going to skip the status part and the grace part for today um, because we just don't have time. So we're going to talk about being reborn through revelation. What does that mean? Um, If you look at John chapter 1, the very last phrase that Michelle read um, gets at some of this revelation language. And this revelation language is all throughout here, meaning God revealing himself. It's all throughout this passage, but one of the the, um, most obvious is at the end. No one has ever seen God, so he's something that needs to be revealed but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close, closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus has made God known. You look at the, the beginning of this chapter. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we've got this idea of, of Word um, in the Greek, the word is a little more ambiguous. It's logos. It's an attempt to um, sort of grab hold of a way of understanding who Jesus is as the revealer of God. Is the word. Um, it goes on to talk about um, through, all, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So now we've got another revelation picture, a light going into darkness. Um, Later on, it talks about the word became flesh and dwelled among us, using an allusion to uh, the old Hebrew Bible. Um, The dwelling word is related to the tabernacle word in Hebrew, so it's 
the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, kind of built a dwelling right in the middle of humanity. So now there's, there's all these different images of God coming and revealing that is being dealt with. It's all about revelation. You start to get the sense that God, in the way of look, the Bible looks at it, God is kind of like, um, like how I learned in science and have seen on TV shows that there really is under my feet, if you go really far down, there's a core of this earth and it's, and it's hot rock, lava type stuff. And it's there and it's radiating this, pulsating this heat and it's truly there, even though I've never seen it. I've never looked down and seen it. But there actually are places in the world you can go, right? You've, some of you have seen it. You've gone to places where there's a crack or there's an opening and it's coming out. It's leaking into our world, this, this hot lava pouring out. Is, is God like that? Is God this? Um, and the Bible seems to, to lead us to think that way and to live that way, to walk around life. You know, like I never walk around thinking I'm walking on top of lava, but, you know, that's kind of what this is getting at, that God is this radiating, pulsating, lively, vital presence that's around us, and it's almost like there's a veil, a very, and it's a very thin veil that much of the time has us not seeing or noticing. And we, so we need revelation to pull away the veil. I, I, I think if we could just get into that truth, as in this, this idea of God's real presence so close, um, we would really get at what it means to be a Christian. And Tim Keller, Tim Keller writes this um, great article you can find online. It was written actually about 15 years ago called How Can I Know God? And in that article he says, very simply towards the beginning, a person who becomes a Christian moves from knowing about God distantly to knowing about him directly and intimately. Christianity is knowing God. That's what he says. And it would follow, and I think this is very true, it would follow that um, if you had any sense of a disappointment of one year that you want to be different in the next year or a resolution you hope to go through on, I think that the answer to any major resolution or dissatisfaction in life, the truest answer actually, can only be found in seeing more of God. That in, in a sense, every one of our attempts to, to see life go in a better direction in the new year is actually kind of a, we may not even know it or sense it that way, but it's actually a grasping for something that can only be found in God. And in knowing God better. If the veil, the thin veil would just be removed, right? And we have to get at why, why that veil? Why does it all seem so hard? If you've attempted to know God, if you've tried, or if you've, maybe you're brand new to the Christian faith, maybe it's, it's been a part of your life a long time, and you both might have the same frustration. Why so hard? Why does it seem like it's so hard? In verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. There's a statement of saying, it's this light that gives light to everyone. It seems so easy, so obvious. But then it goes on to describe what happened. He was in the world, and through the world was, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There's that veil again. You get the sense. There's that, even as he breaks through, the world doesn't see. What's going on? 
How's that possible? Um, I brought a, f- a, a few books along. One of them is, um, has a copy of a, a confession that was written in 1567 in the midst of the um, Protestant Reformation in Europe called the Belgic Confession, and it has this really insightful way of describing what we're getting at here in terms of God's revelation, how we come to know God. So this is called Article 2, The Means by Which We Know God. And, it, and I'm going to read two parts of it because it, it has two means, it says, two means to know God. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power and his divinity. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word. As much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. Um, so that's, that's an interesting thing to try to apply to life and to consider. Two, two books that reveal God, sort of creation and then creation revelation, and then sort of special revelation, the scriptures, and the ways God has revealed himself throughout history through prophets and through Jesus. Interesting. Um, You might say, well, why can't we just collect all of mankind's best teachings, and isn't that enough? Isn't that enough you just collect all the best things, the words of wisdom, the best teachers of all different traditions, because so much can be seen in creation all around us. And actually, the same confession a little bit later on says this incredibly intriguing thing about that kind of idea that, like, what, you know, why do we need special revelation in, term, in addition to this creational general revelation? And this is what it says. Get ready for a truth bomb right here. Um, for all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. Why not just go with all the best teachings of all the world? Well, because we're as vain as vanity itself. We're all liars by nature. Actually, look up the research on lying. There's a fascinating book that came out a few years ago, and I did some preaching on honesty as well that you can find in our podcast. The, the scientific evidence on lying actually supports that. All human beings are liars uh, by nature. But what am I getting at? Basically this. is John Calvin... Um, the other, another big Protestant Reformation name, as he wrote, he said, um, basically, all of creation and even us as creatures of God have become corrupted so much that even though all around us we should be seeing God and knowing God through what we see, even our own vision is clouded. And he says we need the spectacles of Scripture to see because of the fall, because of sin. So the world around us is kind of cloudy and foggy, but also, even if it clears up a little bit or we see a clear patch, we're still dealing with our own limitations of sin and our own cloudy vision. We need revelation. Someone at our men's pod um, last Monday brought up this issue of, you know, it's tempting, and often we do this where we rely on, um, I'll probably just you know, totally mangle what this person said, but they basically were saying we, we rely on you know, 
oh, I'm, I'm going to pray about this thing and I'm going to look for signs and look to see what God does in lieu of also kind of checking in with and consulting scripture along the way. And, and so this person was noting this healthy skepticism of just relying on my own vision to look around and say, ah, this is where God is at work. Oh, I'm connected to God. I see what God's doing. That was a really good insight. And so when we look at this passage and we see verse 5 where it says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I hope that when you, when you see that and you read that word darkness, that you connect that not with just some generalized evil out there somewhere in a bad, bad place, but that you actually connect that somewhat with your, with your own darkness and the darkness immediately in the world around you. The darkness, even that's, that you, we don't even talk about it that negatively because we're so drawn into it. The darkness of, a, of our society and the ways of our society that draw us away from the ways that God reveals to us through Scripture. We desperately need more light. Desperately. We desperately need more of God. And I think every year, you'll be tempted by the darkness all around us to pursue a new you that in some way is actually still very defective and unfinished, even if you attained the goal. Our vanity affects every crossroad we face, every big decision we're going to make. Our dark world is right there cheering, cheering us on in, in the wrong direction. We need help. This is how Tim Keller, in that same article of, of How Can I Know God, he says, our desire for personal knowledge of God is strong, but we usually fail to recognize that desire for what it is. When we first fall in love, when we first marry, when we finally break into our chosen field, or when we, get that, we at last get that weekend house, these breakthroughs arouse in us anticipation of something which, as it turns out, never occurs. Eventually, we discover that our desire for that, precious, uh, for that precious something is a longing no lover or career or achievement, even the best possible ones, can ever satisfy. The satisfaction fades even as we close our fingers around the goal. Nothing delivers the joy it seemed to promise. Many of us avoid the yawning emptiness through busyness or denial. But at best, there is just a postponement. And it seems like John, as he's writing this, as he's giving us this beautiful poetic prologue as an introduction to Jesus, he knows what we need. He just knows what we need. We need more of this animated, lively, pulsating presence of God. And so he writes about it. Um, and let me just read Eugene Peterson, who's another, he's a Presbyterian pastor. I think old and retired now, but he's written a lot of good books. This is what he says about how John, the gospel writer, writes this gospel. St. John tells us that the word of God that brings creation into being and salvation into action became flesh in Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is the word of God. One large dimension of St. John's gospel shows Jesus bringing men and women into conversation with God, no longer merely reading the scriptures, at which many of them were quite adept, but listening to God 
which they hardly guessed was possible. At no place in St. John's Gospel is the Word of God simply there, carved in stone, painted on a sign, printed in a book. The Word is always sound. Words spoken and heard, questioned and answered, rejected and obeyed, and finally prayed. Christians in the early church were immersed in these conversations and it changed the way they read the scriptures. Now it was all voice. They heard Jesus speaking off of every page of the scriptures. When they preached and taught, they did not expound texts. They preached Jesus, a living person with a living voice. talking about rebirth talking about how scripture is a part of God's revelation of himself his active alive pulsating powerful presence and it and it totally shifts your life in all kinds of ways if that pierces through the veil and becomes real and it's not a one-time, quick-moment, snap rebirth. It's a lifetime rebirth. Um, so when we, together, take on the challenge to be, as some people have said, a people of the book, people of this book, um, it's not, you can see from what Eugene Peterson was saying, it's not a stale, kind of codified, written rule book. It's not bookish to be people of the book. It's an active, alive conversation with a being that has a voice. I wish I could have um, been there. When you're looking at, if you're looking at the Bibles in the seats, you would see that um, one page over is the end of the Gospel of Luke. So you got the beginning of John, right here you got the end of the Gospel of Luke, which is extraordinarily pertinent to what we're talking about today as well. And it's one of my favorite little insights to Jesus and being with Jesus. It's sort of his graduate level course with his disciples on reading scripture. And I wish I could have been sitting there to hear how he did this, but it says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? At the beginning with Moses, or in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then it says, just skipping ahead a little bit to verse 44, it says, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And... uh, the response to some of the disciples in the middle of that in verse 32 was they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And friends, that's no different than what is expected and practiced in the church still today. That kind of just active vibrant, pulsating, burning kind of response to a real conversation 
with God in a real presence. That's what revelation is about. That's what your rebirth, if you're considering Christianity for the first time or if you've been one for a long time, that's what your rebirth comes from, that conversation. It's alive, it's active. There's a place in the book of Hebrews, I think chapter 4, that says the word of God is living and active. It goes on to say it's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's active. It's vibrant. Not just because these pages are sanctified somehow, or you know, or it's glowing or magical, like like a wand in in a Harry Potter book that you know you have to be careful of and not step on and not break. In a sense, if you find a Bible in the gutter that looks totally wrecked and unusable, um, you might have that little part of you, like I might, which would think if I picked it up, like, oh, you know, wow, what a shame. But there's another reality of just throw it in the garbage. <laughs> because it's not, it, it's not usable anymore. And it's not about this, the paper and these things on it. It's about this, what I started with, this pulsating, vibrant reality that's all around us and scripture has become what is our God's gift to us to open up the veil, to pierce through, to see God for who he is. And one of the problems, especially around New Year's time, is that we're looking at this, at the Bible, maybe in our lives if you're a Christian, and you're, you're wanting it to give you some, always give me something to use right now in my life. You know, what, how can it help me right now in this situation? Um... This is what Eugene Peterson says about this. This acquisitive mode is so culturally expected and congregationally rewarding that it cannot fail to affect our approach to the scriptures. When we sit down to read scriptures, we already have an end product in view. We want to find something useful for people's lives to meet their expectations of us. And he's writing kind of for pastors, so he says... Uh, we want to find something useful for people's lives to meet their expectations of us as pastors who deliver the goods. If someone says to me, I don't get anything out of reading scripture, he says, my knee-jerk response is, I will show you how to read it so that you can get something out of it. The operative word is get. I will help you be a better consumer. There's a sense in which as city life looks to this year and has this prayer book that has the guided scripture readings throughout it, we're not saying like each day you open this up and crack it, crack it open and read it. You're going to get something right now. But we're, we're talking about living closer and, and, and receiving the revelation that is piercing through the veil. Living closer to that presence. Living closer to that voice. Living in it more and more so that we just simply know God better. Not that we get something right now for this problem or this issue. Although quite frankly, you'll notice if you choose to explore daily or weekly readings of scripture, that God often does that as well. Not only are you paving the layers of a groundwork of living by faith two, five, ten years from now, that's a lot of what the groundwork of regular scripture reading does. It prepares you for the challenges later on and the celebrations later on. But also God will be piercing through um, with things for right now. Um, there's, uh, there was a, a moment when a good, I have a good, good friend of mine who I share kind of everything with, and um, his name's David, and sometimes he comes here and he's preached here before. He's another pastor. 
And when I was wrestling with something, the last time I had something going on and I had called him and talked to him, and then after we hung up, then on my phone pops up this text message from him, and it has a link. And, um, and I kind of saw it, and I saw it had something about uh, Isaiah in it. And, and I kind of thought, oh, okay, you know. And I did the, the normal thing of just kind of, oh, okay, whatever, I'll read that sometime. I was busy with something with my kids or whatever. Eventually, I open it up and look at it, and here's it, all it was was I thought it was going to be some long article or something. It was three verses from the prophet of Isaiah, and I got it on my phone so I could read it to you. Just an example. I think I have it. Here it is. He just sends me so so. This is an example of a good friend. He just sends me some scripture from Isaiah chapter forty-one. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's it. So I think, I think one of the things to just consider is, are you ready to immerse yourself in this story of revelation? Are you ready for your rebirth to really take on a new edge as you open yourself to this pulsating lively presence of God that's all around you. And I would say, secondly, make sure you're in community as you do that. Um, Because doing it alone won't go even half as far. Um, One last final thing to just end on. This is um, a great book, Rethinking How You Read the Bible by Scott McKnight. And the book is called, that was the subtitle, the book is called The Blue Parakeet. He says, here is the conclusion, and this is, so this is like a Bible scholar. He says, this is, here is a conclusion that has taken me nearly 30 years to come to. Without denying the u- legitimacy of various terms in the authority approach, he's talking about the Bible, those who have a proper relationship to the Bible never need to speak of the Bible as their authority, nor do they speak of their submission to the Bible. They are so in tune with God, so in love with Him, that the word authority is swallowed up in loving God. Even more, the word submission is engulfed in the disposition of listening to God speak through the Bible and in the practice of doing so, what God calls us to do. Or in the, prophet, in the pro- practice of doing what God calls us to do. Let's end with that. Let's pray. Our gracious God, may these words... Um, these frail human words be words that you use to enliven our faith life. Uh, Would you uh, give us the gift of each other as we try to look into your word and hear your voice? May we have ears to hear. And perhaps may we get to the end of 2015 and looking back, may we see key situations in our lives that we dealt with And may we be associating certain scripture passages, perhaps, or concepts from the story in scripture with those moments of growth that we have looking back. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.